Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Do you love a good story? Fantastic. Because each episode of Storytime features some of your favorite creators from YouTube, TikTok, Reddit, and beyond sharing their most hilarious, horrifying, and cringe-inducing stories. Now, peeking in, I realize that she is talking... To the doll heads. Every week, I, your host, Will McFadden, deliver a hot, fresh, tasty tale directly to your earbuds. And you don't even have to tip me. Listen to Storytime every Wednesday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The past revealed. I am Jason Horton. I'm Rebecca Lieb. And this is Ghost Town. In 1959, the bodies of 10 young students, experienced hikers and skiers, were found in bizarre and puzzling ways strewn over a forested mountaintop. Their deaths would remain a mystery. Until a week ago. I kid you not. This is the story of the Dyloff Pass. So, again, this starts in 1959. There's a group of early the 20-somethings, they're all in their early 20s from like 20 to 23. There's one 38-year-old outlier to kind of lead them, has a little bit more experience under his belt. And they all study at the Ural Polytechnical Institute. And it was an organized skiing expedition across the Ural Mountains in the Soviet Union. Igor Daitlov, a 23-year-old radio engineer, was kind of the leader who assembled everybody, asking nine of his college friends eight men and two women to join up. Again, I'm sorry if I mispronounced some names. I'm bound to do that. Even Dite's Love Pass was a stretch for me. So again, apologies. In any case, all of them were experienced grade two hikers with lots of skiing experience. Also, it was kind of going to be a hike skiing hybrid trip. And when they returned, all of them would be receiving their grade three hiking certification, which is really impressive. It was the highest certification available in the Soviet Union and required candidates to climb over 190 miles. 
The route was designed by Deitlov's group to reach the far northern regions of Sverdlovsk Oblast and approved by the Sverdlovsk City Route Commission, even though it was supposed to be the most difficult time to take that route. The goal of the expedition was to reach a Tortin, uh, which is a 6.2-mile-high mountain. Semyon Zolotaryov, who was previously certified to go with another expedition of similar difficulty, decided to go with the Daitlov group. On 23rd of January, 1959, Semyon Igor Daitlov, Yuri Doroshenko, Ludmila Dubinina, Yuri Krivonischenko, Alexander Kolovtov, Zenidia Kolomogorova, Rustam Slobodin, Nikolai Thibo Brigols, Alexander Zolotaryov, and Yuri Yudin all left on their expedition. The group arrived by train at Ivdel, a small town in the middle of Sverdolovsk Obstan, two days later. Then they all took a truck to Vizhai, where they bought a bunch of bread and carboloaded for the next day's start, when the actual hike would begin. As they hiked, one member, Yuri Yudin, who suffered from several health ailments, he had uh, rheumatism and a congenial heart defect, decided to turn back. His knees and joints were giving him a pretty hard time. It would be a decision that saved his life. On January 31st, the group arrived at the edge of a highland area and began to prepare for climbing. They secured food and equipment there that would be used for when they would come back through. The next day, the 10 planned to get over the pass and make camp for the next night on the opposite side, but bad conditions, snowstorms, and decreasing visibility made them lose their direction and push the group more west than they had planned. When they realized that they were more west than they should be, the group decided to just set up camp right on the slope of the mountain rather than move a couple of miles downhill to a forested area, which would have offered a little bit of shelter from the weather. Diaries and cameras found around their last campsite made it possible to track the group's route up until this point, which is really a really profound part of the story to see their writing and to see the pictures. They had a camera that the film was developed after the fact, so it feels very, very spooky in that way. And they're all so young and very, you know, positive and optimistic and really excited about each other and the, you know, exploring the mountaintop. The group had so much ahead of them and they talk about what they were studying and how that was significant to this expedition. But unfortunately that night would be the last day that they would all be alive. Before leaving on the expedition, Love told the university sports club he would send a telegram no later than February 12th. When the 12th passed and no messages had been received, there was no immediate reaction because it was pretty normal to encounter delays, etc. But on February 20th, the travelers' relatives demanded a rescue operation, and the head of the institute sent the first rescue groups, consisting of volunteer students and teachers. Later, the Soviet army and military got involved, sending planes and helicopters ordered to join the rescue efforts. On February 26th, the rescue team found the group's abandoned and badly damaged tent. The campsite was, and this is a benchmark of this case, incredibly baffling. The tent was half torn down and covered with snow. It was empty and all the group's belongings and shoes had been left behind in the tent. It had been cut open from the inside. Nine sets of footprints left by people wearing only socks or a single shoe or even barefoot could be followed kind of leading down the edge of a nearby wood, on the opposite side of the pass, a mile away. At the forest's edge, the searchers found the visible remains of a small fire under a large pine tree, and they also found the first two bodies. These were Krivanchenko and Doroshenko, shoeless and dressed only in underwear. 
The branches on the tree were broken up to five meters high, suggesting that the 23-year-old and 21-year-old had climbed up to look for something or to observe something or maybe to get away from something. Between the pine tree and the camp, the searchers found three more bodies, Dytlov, Komolo-Gorova, and Slobodin, who died in poses suggesting that they were attempting to return to the tent. They were found at distances of 980, 1,500, and 2,000 feet from the tree, with food in their stomachs from their last meal, maybe six to eight hours from their time of death. A medical examination found no injuries that might have led to their deaths, and it was concluded that they had all died of hypothermia. Slobodin had a small crack in his skull, but it wasn't serious enough to be fatal. It took two more months to find the remaining four hikers. On May 4th, they were found under 13 feet of snow in a ravine deep in the woods. All four bodies appeared to have soft tissue damage to their head and face. All the bodies, too, were really kind of charred-looking. They Their skin had darkened, which is a lot of theories around this that we'll, we'll get to, but perhaps excessive snow damage. All four of the bodies were better dressed than the others, and there were signs that some clothing of those who had died first had been removed for use by these bodies. People, the bodies were found. Dubinina was wearing Krivenshenko's burned, torn trousers, and her left foot and shin were wrapped in a torn jacket. In May, the narrative of the deaths being purely hypothermia had shifted. Three of the new bodies found had fatal injuries. Thibo Brignolis had major skull damage. Dubinina and Zolotaryev had major chest fractures. To give you some perspective, the force required to cause that kind of bodily damage would have, have to have been more powerful than a car crash. Notably, the bodies had no external wounds associated with the bone fractures. It's as if they were pressurized from the inside out. For example, Dubinina was missing her tongue, eyes, part of her lips, as well as facial tissue and a fragment of her skull. Zolotaryov had his eyeballs missing, and Alexander Kolotetov, again, apologize for mispronouncing these names, was missing his eyebrows. According to the coroner, these injuries happened post-mortem due to location of the bodies in the stream. Although the temperature was really low, negative 13 to negative 22 degrees Fahrenheit, insanely low. With a storm blowing, the dead were only partially dressed. Some had only one shoe, like I said, some socks, some wrapped in snips of ripped clothing that seemed to have been cut from other people. Also noteworthy and puzzling was some radiation was found around a couple of the bodies. The official conclusion was that the group members had died because of a compelling natural force. That's it. A compelling natural force. Very ambiguous. The inquest officially ended in May 1959 as a result of the absence of any conclusion or guilty party, really. The files were sent into a secret Soviet archive. The death on Dytlov Pass would become Russia's most famous unsolved mystery. Or would it? We'll find out after this break. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. 
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, hello. How are you? Hello. Are hello. you well? Are you well? Are you no, unwell? We hope you're well. I hope you're well too. Yeah. Yeah. I'm in that camp. Talking about doing this episode, mm-hmm. we were like, I feel like we've done this before. <laughs> but we've done so many episodes. So many. And I was like, I know I know this story better than I would normally know it. Mm-hmm. And it was an episode of Patreon. Yes. However, this is, well, somebody somebody actually made a request and it's actually coming true. The episode is from November 2019. Okay, so that's a while, while back. That's a while. We've gotten worse as people. Yeah, but we've gotten better at nothing. True. So that's good. That's true. That's true. But- Somebody had commented on this episode. Somebody had commented on this episode, Mariah Mahosky. She says, hopefully you'll do this one again with more information Mm -hmm. and hoping for a part two when we go deeper into the story. Mm -hmm. And there is more to the story. And that's why this episode is happening. That's right. That's why this is resurfacing. (laughs) My memory, my like goldfish memory felt like this is familiar. It's been a while. We do two episodes a week. But yeah, I I think – you know, having this and having the update is really important, and hopefully it makes it all a little bit more meaningful. I think we go into some of the theories a little bit more in this one. And it's it's just a really compelling. We could talk about it forever, honestly. It's really interesting. But don't let it stop you from going to patreon.com slash ghost town pod, <laughs> where we have bonus episodes. Mm-hmm. We'll have a bonus episode up as you're listening to this and another documentary episode yes if you're at that tier yes that was really fun i had a lot to say about surviving death on netflix which had me crying literally throughout all six episodes so i talk about that i talk about my own experiences sharing your pain Sharing your pain you know, for it, others' pleasure. So you can find that at <laughs> patreon.com slash ghost town pod. Uh-huh. Want to say hello to our government. 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 That's right. Hello. We got a little Brandon Gaddis. Mm-hmm. We got a little Ashley Matson. Mm-hmm. We got a little Ben Forsyth. Our mayors all under the helm <laughs> and iron grip. That's right. Of Chris Witt. Hello. And I don't know if we did it last time, but I wanted to share some of the Apple podcast reviews that we get. And people are always very cool. Like the best response I think we've gotten is asking for, you know, to try to help, you know, help us out in Apple podcast because somebody might look at it and see a comment like this. Ooh. Take a hike. Okay. You want to express your political views? Stick <laughs> to doing a show and maybe one day I'll listen again. Um, from... Dean hates Dems. I have a feeling it won't. <laughs> Dean hates Dems. Maybe it's it's funny. It's like uh, repress your political views from Dean hates Dems. Great. Now I wonder if our political <laughs> views were different, would he have commented negatively? That's a or really is good it, question. What you really want to say is stick to politics as long as I. They are in alignment with mine. Mine. Yeah. And even if we were for some reason <laughs> so, more aligned, it's not going to 
It's not going to line up perfectly. I don't even remember. I don't think we we get political maybe two percent of the time. And that episode, of the, all that this Coke, blathering, Diet Coke button episode was so <laughs> benign. It was if you find that offensive, you have not been looking at social media or the news yeah. for, the for years. Yeah, because that's hurting you. I was You're even, great. I, I and you defended Trump. <laughs> I found a way to, yeah. you know, maybe. I think you did. Like I think you, you're like, the. It was, what a great part of Trump's presidency. I mean, I was like, I wish I knew that sooner. <laughs> I would have been there with you, Dean. But no, you hate me. So we get ones like that, but there's a, there's a couple of, there's a couple of goodies. One of the best. Mm. Is this the best? One of the best. Is this the best podcast in the world? No. <laughs> Is it close? Yes. What? Rebecca and Jason are fantastic. They cover interesting and entertaining stories, authentic, funny. Super lucky to have Rebecca as a guest on Choose Your Struggle. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. That's so sweet. And I can tell she's authentic, honest in interview. Unhinged. Yep. About to have a breakdown. Two or three times a week, spreading Mm -hmm. the word. Oh, that's so nice. Never change either of you. You're wonderful just the way you are. Oh, I'm going to cry. If you were a little more conservative. I don't know. Oh, it's a, it took a turn. It took a turn at the end there. And let's see here. Fun and approachable darkness. Huh. Brian Ped. Jason and Rebecca have a fun, well-informed and approaches take to some really dark and sometimes lighthearted topics. The banter mm-hmm. back and forth makes you feel like you're just hanging out with a couple of friends. Mm-hmm. It's worth a listen or quite a few. Hint, hint, binge the archives. That's what a lot of messages that we get or people that binge because you know, they're not super necessarily super long yeah and if you go on patreon there's i was just looking there's like 60 50 60 bonus episodes the Whoa. early access ones with no ads if you want to cut out that ad nonsense oh or this is what we're doing right now yeah you can cut this out that's where you want to be <laughs> and this one has no subject it's just from taylor w 1994 the stories are great i just get the stories are great. I just start to get annoyed when you spend more time complaining about the reviews than the story <laughs> you guys are talking about. You don't know us if you think that the complaining is at an annoying maximum. <laughs> no, we dial everything back so yeah, much. Yeah, it's at our best behavior. So uh, I guess I, I'm apologizing for you, for us, for you. And I, I'll try to be a different person. And plug two more things. <laughs> okay. I just got a bunch of samples of the Los Feliz Murder House shirt that Rebecca has. Yeah, modeled. it's great. Very and comfy. The colors are so good. I want to make sure the quality was good. So I ordered uh. some different colors, make sure they didn't fade or wash. But you can find there's a link in the show notes, or you can go to ghosttownpod.com slash store. Mm-hmm. Check that out. I have a short little YouTube video on Miss American Vampire 1970. Mm-hmm. Fun little thing. YouTube.com slash Jason Horton. Link in the show notes. Check it out. Give it a subscribe. Give it a like. Yeah. And check out the TikTok ghost town pod where people just get mad at me. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm so – Jason is really at the helm of a lot of these parts of our podcast. So I, he's mercifully, like, protected me from a lot of the hate or I just am in my own little world. So I don't like that people are y- y- getting mad at you, yelling at you. What are they saying? Oh, they're like – you know, it's like, you think you're so hot, but you're like a nine, you're oh, not even a ten. And you're and like, get out of here. I was like, whatever, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's tough. It's like, it's like, hey, it's like, you're not even 21 yet. And you're like. Or you don't look like you are. 
you look maybe 20. And I'm like, you know what? I'm done with it. I don't Not care. the time nor the place. No. I take your marriage proposals. Mm, okay. Right? And you're wanting to invest in me personally with your money? Oh, yeah, yeah. TikTok is going to be – it's rough. That's nah, rough for you. No, thank you. I don't like that. Oh, you guys cut it out. Cut it out. He's losing sleep over this abuse. So you just want to go back to Russia? Yeah, let's go back to this hot, hot content and get to some cold, cold mountain, huh? So we're back. We're on this mountaintop. Let's review a couple of the things that we covered before the break. So we have these 10 bodies found on the mountaintop. Six of the members have been classified as dying from hypothermia and three of fatal injuries. There were no indications of other people nearby on Kolat Saikal, the the mountain range, apart from these specific travelers. The tent had been ripped open from within. Some victims had died six to eight hours after their last meal. All of the hikers left the campsite on foot, willingly, without at least one shoe. Some levels of radiation were found in one or more of the victims' clothing. And what happened? What happened? So, of course, again, this is one of those mysteries that is huge. When I started getting into true crime, it was such a big part of my discovery of loving it because there's so much that could have happened up there. There's so much possibility. It's so tragic and so obscure. And each of the little details will complicate things more than they bring us clarity. So let's go through the theories. And please, Jason, weigh in if you agree or disagree with them, whatever. So the first theory is Yetis. And that's the the most obscure theory. Probably not Yetis. But I think a part of it is the context of being that specific time and place of the fear of indigenous people. The Mansi people were reindeer herders located in the area. And initially, some authorities thought that the Mansi people had attacked and murdered the group for being on their land. Several Mansi were interrogated, but the bodies and crime scene showed no sign of hand-to-hand struggle or there was no evidence of other people around them. So that quickly uh, fell off as a theory. Again, an unfortunate one and a kind of a cultural one that I don't like. Number three, a Soviet secret weapons experiment, mostly due to the unexplained radiation. The campsite fell within the path of a Soviet parachute mine exercise. That's what a lot of people think. That is unsubstantiated. Some thought that the hikers, awakened by loud explosion, fled the tent in a shoeless panic and found themselves unable to come back and get their things. After some members froze to death attempting to endure the bombardment, others commandeered their clothing only to be fatally injured by subsequent parachute mine concussions. Another theory. So there's records of parachute mines being tested also in that area by the Soviet military, Around the time the hikers were there, parachute mines detonate while still in the air rather than when they strike the Earth's surface and produce injuries similar to those that were experienced by the hikers, heavy internal damage, not a lot of external trauma. The theory coincides with reported sightings of glowing orange orbs floating or falling in the sky. Some people even go as far as to say the bodies were then unnaturally manipulated by the government based on some characteristics of the dead the burns to the hair and skin that we talked about. Photographs of the tent allegedly show that it was pitched incorrectly, which is another thing that a lot of people who like this theory latch on to. Experienced hikers wouldn't have, you know, incorrectly pitched a tent. A kind of an offshoot of this theory is that the Soviet government was testing radiological weapons. And it's, again, based on the little bit of radioactivity on some of the clothing and the descriptions of the bodies. 
But the radioactivity would have affected all of the bodies, not just one or maybe two, and all of their clothes. But radioactivity would have affected all of the bodies and clothes, not just one or two. And the discoloration can be explained by months of exposure to the cold and wind. By the late 1980s, all of the Deitlov files had been released in some manner, so it was probably not like a military cover-up. But what about those orbs? A UFO cover-up? Former police officer Lev Ivanov, who led the official inquest in 1959, published an article in 1990 admitting that the investigation team had no rational explanation for the incident. He also stated that after his team reported that they had seen flying spheres, he then received direct orders from high-ranking regional officials to dismiss this claim. Another group of hikers 31 miles south of the incident reported that they saw strange orange spheres to the north on the night that all of this happened. Similar spheres were observed in the Ivedel and adjacent areas continually during the period from February to March in 1959 by various independent witnesses, including a meteorology service and the military. These sightings were not noted in the 1959 investigation. These witnesses all came forward later. So it's interesting that a UFO cover-up is more compelling than a military cover-up, more compelling than some of the other theories out there. Then there's the theory of infrasound. This was the one that was really walked through in Donnie Eicher's 2013 book, Dead Mountain, which is where I got a lot of this information and is an incredible read if you want to know more, if you want to get really, I don't really get really personal into the histories of a lot of these people, but it it has a nice, like beautiful, moving personal spin on everything that happened in the Dietlov Pass. So the wind going around Colette Saikal created a Carmen Vortex Street which produces infrasound that can cause panic attack in humans. According to Iker, the infrasound generated by the wind as it passed over the top of the mountain caused the hikers to completely freak out, drive them to leave the tent and flee down the slope. By the time they were down the hill, they would have regained composure, but in the darkness, they would have been unable to return to their shelter and stumbled around, injuring themselves till they froze to death. The sixth theory is catabatic winds or drainage winds is a wind that carries high-density air from a higher elevation down a slope under the force of gravity. So a sudden catabatic wind would have made it impossible to remain in the tent, so the group would have sought shelter behind some kind of tree line. In 2019, a Swedish-Russian expedition went to the site to investigate specifically that theory and proposed a violent catabatic wind may have been the cause of an incident. A similar thing happened in 1978, where eight Swedish hikers in a very similar Conditions, mountainside, were killed, and one was severely injured in the aftermath of a catabatic wind. Hypothermia is also a theory. Original hypothesis, still perhaps true in in some cases, but not in all cases. But again, it doesn't answer the question of why they would leave their campsite to begin with. The last theory is an avalanche. On July 11th, 2020, Andrei Kurakov, deputy head of the Urals Federal District Directorate of the Prosecutor General's Office, announced an avalanche to be the official cause of death for the Detlov group in 1959. There are some reasons where this might have, there's still some evidence that says that maybe this is not the case. So I'm going to just read those over right here. The area didn't have signs an avalanche had taken place. Over 100 expeditions had been held since the incident, none reported conditions that might create an avalanche. If there's an avalanche, its path would have gone past the tent. The tent had collapsed from the side, but not in a horizontal direction. Dietlov was an experienced skier and much older. He was 38 versus the 23-year-old Dietlov was studying for his master's certificate in ski instruction and mountain hiking. Neither would have made camp anywhere if it was in the path of a potential avalanche. They're much too experienced for that. Footprint patterns leading away from the tent were inconsistent with someone, let alone a group of nine people, running in panic from either real or imagined danger. 
All the footprints leading away from the tent and towards the woods were consistent with individuals who were walking at a normal pace. And yet, here's the official 2019-2020 narrative of the deaths of the Detlev Pass. This is taking into account the weather that was originally underestimated by the 1959 investigators. On February 1st, the group arrives in Colette Saikal Mountain and pitches a large nine-person tent on an open slope. On that day and a few days later, heavy snowfall continue with strong wind and frost. Digging a tent site into the snow weakens the snow base. During the night, the snowfield above the tent starts to slide down slowly under the weight of the new snow, gradually pushing on the tent fabric, starting from the entrance. The group wakes up, starts evacuation in panic, with only some able to put on warm clothes. With the entrance blocked, the group escapes through a hole cut in the tent fabric and descends the slope to find a place perceived as safe from an avalanche, maybe 1,500 feet down at the forest border. Because some of the members don't have enough clothing, the group splits. Two of the group members, only in their underwear and pajamas, die from hypothermia. Three hikers, including Dietlov, try to get back in this tent, maybe to get some sleeping bags for warmth. They had better clothes than those in the fire pit, but still no shoes and not anything that was nearly warm enough. Their bodies were found at various distances from the campfire and poses suggesting that they had fallen exhausted while trying to climb in the deep snow in extremely cold weather. The remaining four, equipped with warm clothing and footwear, were trying to find or build a better camping place in the forest further down the slope. Their injuries came from falling into a snow hole formed above a stream. Negligence of the 1959 investigators contributed to the report creating more questions than answers and inspiring, as we went through it, numerous, numerous theories about why this happened. So those are really the primary theories around it. But before I get to the new update, which happened on February 2nd, this is very new, I just want to ask, what do you think happened? You know, it's... it's I feel like when I just think back to like 1959, which doesn't seem that long ago, that they would have more answers because I feel like a lot of circumstances have probably happened to understand what could have happened. Yeah. When you think like, okay, we're going to, you know, what are the dangers of us going camping and skiing and climbing? I feel like all those things are probably already determined. Unless you said, like, it's Yetis or something like that. Yeah. Or UFOs. Take Mm -hmm. that out of the the account. I feel like it should be easily answered because people have been climbing and snow for years. Mm -hmm. Years, 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 years. And I feel like there, there really should be no question on what happened, even though it's extremely odd. But it should be easy to figure out what happened to nine people in one spot over probably a short amount of time. Mm-hmm. And like you said, you know, there's lack of quality investigation. Is yeah. that is that possible? You know, we talk about, you know, we're, you know, kind of the, the secrecy of Russia. There's yeah. a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about the Ural Mountains. Mm-hmm. I very recently very into secret Soviet Towns and secret Ooh, Soviet cities. Yeah, baby. And there was one. Well, I definitely want to do an episode. That's what I was looking at. I can't find a ton of information though, even though there's like a good amount out there. Is one that is in the Ural Mountains, mm. and it's very secretive. And what happens there? But it, it there is somewhat of a connection. There's somewhat of a connection from like what you're talking about with radiation, yeah, and kind of secrecy and stuff in mountains and these secret Soviet cities that totally. you are not allowed in. That's totally. What you don't go there. Like you can't, it's like places you cannot go. Yeah. And that makes sense. 1959, information is extremely powerful and, and there is a lot of, what's what I'm thinking of, 
paranoia when it comes yeah. to that kind of stuff. So it kind of makes sense that things have been, you know, incomplete for so long, but so many people talk about this. Mm-hmm. It's like, hey, it's only been 40 plus years. We want answers. Yeah. And you're kind of, I don't know, if people didn't write books and, and talk about it like we're talking about it and so forth and so on, would they even bother? Yeah. Probably not. Would they be like, well, you know, we should really figure this out. Or they'd be like, well, what's, the f- I mean, you know, it's kind of past the point. What is yeah. it to figure out? Yeah. And it, it does feel like, you know, there's a lot of living relatives of these people that have died. And it is, it's so tied to the time and place, this mystery and the deaths of these young people that I think it's. It does it. it. It really ties into the allure of Russia at the time, what was happening, the, you know, just a bunch of young people dying. I think all the details. And I think really, I mean, in my opinion, and even after uh, the update, which we'll get to, I, I think it's, it can also be a combination of things too. Like that also does exist. It's not just like one thing or another thing. So a couple of weeks ago, one of Russia's Greatest Mysteries kind of solved. Amazing. So exciting. A lot of people were talking about it. It was solved with the help of Disney's Frozen, if you can believe it. So Johan Gaum, head of a Swiss federal technical institute named the Snow Avalanche Simulation Laboratory, was struck by how well the movement of snow was depicted in Disney's Frozen. So he hit up the animators who worked on it for the code to use it to help him in his work. Following a trip to Hollywood, he modified the film's snow animation code for his avalanche simulation models to simulate the impacts that avalanches would have on a human body. Researchers were able to create a simulation of the Colat cycle avalanche, if, again, if it was an avalanche. Gaum worked on the project with Alexander Puzerin, a geotechnical engineer at ETH Zurich. The simulation showed that a block of snow on the Colat cycle could quote, handily break the ribs and skulls of people in his path. Based on their findings, they have concluded that a, quote, bizarrely small delayed avalanche called a slab avalanche, so a specific avalanche type, may well be the solution to what happened on that mountain. The slab avalanche's hours-long delay would explain why it didn't sweep away the hikers when they first cut into the mountain slope to pitch their tent, and its relatively small size would account for why it didn't leave behind the typical signs of an avalanche. But it still would have moved quickly, slamming into the hiker's tent with the force of a speeding SUV. The impact would explain why several of the hikers suffered severe injuries, as well as why the group frantically cut their way out of the tent and fled in such an unprepared state. The fact that the group was sleeping on top of their skis would have further increased the impact by pinning them between the avalanche and the hard surface of the skis. The things like missing uh, tongue or eyeballs, they say, was probably animals coming in after the fact, when the snow was melting a lot of snow damage. So that, again, that's what might explain for those those other details that were are a very morbid and gripping part of the case. But that kind of is now thought to be the answer to what happened to these hikers. And it makes sense. It's really interesting how that technology came about and how it's utilized, which is kind of a positive upswing to a really tragic story. I didn't realize Frozen was so dark. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that 
and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that you know Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.